Greetings everybody and welcome to episode three of Mandatory Marvel and DC, the show that takes a look back at the very biggest and best storylines from the big two of comics. I'm your host Max Byrne and I hope you'll continue to join me each and every week as we cover these classic moments that have stood the test of time and crossed over into the mainstream. Now, for episode three, I'd like to welcome along an extremely special guest. Joining us from the USA, a wonderful writer and host of the amazing Indie Comics Spotlight podcast, the force of nature from Florida, Mr. Tony Farina. Ah, Tony. Nice. <laughs> it's like I have a boxing intro. That was Indeed. fantastic. I've got to hype you up. Thanks so much, Tony, for coming onto the show and giving up your time. How are you oh. bearing up with all the madness that's engulfing the world at the moment? Yeah, well, our stupid governor finally did the or- uh, stay in place order last night. Because he's an idiot. So, um, you know, we've been staying in place because we're not. Uh, But yeah, Yeah. we're okay. I work from home normally. So my life is okay. You know, like I'm in good shape there. It's just like, you know, try to avoid the panic. So even this deep, heavy book is, was it was a welcome respite to spend time reading this. You know, I haven't read this since it came out. I, I bought it when way back when. So it was I mean, I, I probably read it since then. But like to to sit with this critical eye, it was great. Great distraction. Yeah. So just trying to be distracted and reading comics and working. It sounds like the perfect plan to me. Um, we're, we're in a weird state over here in the UK. We're kind of closed for business. Now, uh, only essential uh, businesses are still open and we're all, all sort of housebound for at least another 10 days, but probably due to get extended beyond that. So it's a case of wait and see, but it's an interesting time, shall we say. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and you know, end of end of days, which of course is preached about e- extremely in this book. So, <laughs> it is indeed. Well, on that subject, as always on this show, the subject matter is purely down to the choice of the guest. Oh, so w- why don't you tell everybody exactly it is what we're going to be looking at this week? Yeah. Well, when you, when I heard you did the show, there mm-hmm. um, there were two books. I was like, okay, I'm going to recommend these two books to Max. And then you offered me to be on as a guest. So I'm like, well, yeah. Which one would I, which one do I think, you know, you're starting off, you want to start off with a bang. So we're going to do uh, the Marvel classic, Chris Claremont, Brett Anderson, God Loves Man Kills, starring the Uncanny X-Men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you've gone big, that's for sure. My for God. sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in this one. There's a lot of stuff in there. There's racist stuff in there. There's religious right-wing zealots in there. There's children being killed. There's bigotry. It's, there's a lot going on in this book. Yeah. Um, so before we sort of dive into it and discuss it, what's your history with this one? Is this what you got when it was released back in um, 1982? Or is it something you came to later in life? What's your sort of brief history with this title? Sure. So in 19, I did not get it in 82, I think the one that I got, because I was only nine in 82, but the one that I got was the, at the very end, there's alternate covers. So I got the, the reprint cover from the early 90s. So I was in high school. That was the first time I saw it was like 93 or 94. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it was even earlier than that. I graduated high school in 91. I read it in high school. So I, I know that I picked it up based on the yep. cover. I was at a, I was just... Um, at a shop and it was there and I was like you know I, I had been reading X-Men they were really my only go-to Marvel book I'm a DC guy uh, was a DC guy growing up um, mm-hmm. but I did get into X-Men because they're the X-Men and they're you know it's like the best group book and so in Marvel I actually read X-Men and I read West Coast Avengers do you remember West Coast of all yeah, of it? yeah with Hawkeye and I, okay. I loved West Coast Avengers that was like such a weird <laughs> little book <laughs> I really enjoyed that. And so, but this was completely different from anything that I'd ever read. And so, so because I would pick up X-Men whenever I could afford it, I saw this and it was the big glossy standalone. It was like six or seven bucks, which at the time was outrageous. But as soon as I opened it to the first couple of pages, that was it. I was like, yeah, I'm yeah. buying this. I don't need to read another thing. And then, like I said, so I've, I've, I'd read it a bunch then, probably once a month for a year because it was so, just, I was distraught. You know, and then over course of time, I read it a few times. I sold all my comics in college, but I've read it digitally a few times, and now I have it digitally. So. Yeah, right. So it's one you've obviously revisited a lot. Oh, yeah, the- because I think it's it's the one thing about the X Men. Maybe this is why I kind of liked them so much. Is and they're the closest. X Men have always been like a DC title, mm. in my opinion. It's um the DC books 
not, not all, but many of the DC books that I read were just heavier. You know, I did like West Coast Avengers. It was much lighter fare. But most of the comics I've always read have been heavier, yeah. darker stuff. And the X-Men have always had that undercurrent there. there. There's a lot of tension. Like in the Justice League, even in the West Coast Avengers, they, don't, they all get along. Everybody's just happy to see each other. And that just seems yeah. absurd to me. But in the X-Men, you've got these like amped up people from all around the world with superpowers. And for the most part, they're hormonal teenagers too, on top of that. And so I always found it so real. Yeah, the Claremont X-Men really captured as a teenager what it was like to be a teenager, what you perceived to be a teenager and the angst. And there was, um, there, there was a long stretch there when they couldn't decide with the new group if Storm was going to be the leader or when Scott comes back, if Scott was going to mm. be the leader. And I was always on Team Storm. But it was just like, there was just a lot of tension there. And so I just kind of always loved them. So anything I could get my hands on with them, I would. Yeah, and so, so it's just, it's, it's, to me, it's still the best X-Men comic and that's high bar because they've got some good shit out there. But when did you yeah. find it? Uh, well, I'm a, only a little bit younger than you. So I was only three in, oh, in okay. 1982. So yeah. <laughs> that certainly wasn't going to happen. So if I'm being brutally honest, probably only about a decade ago, oh. I would say. I mean, obviously, as a, a, a child, when reading comics, this isn't anything a child should be reading. This is... No. Very much um, mature audience only, as they like yeah, to say. teenagers in that um, for sure. Mm, yeah, there's no way I'd let any of my uh, kids read this. So, it, no, it was something that I, yeah, probably about a decade ago, I would say. It, it, it's one of those where it always crops up, doesn't it, on essential reading, recommendations, you know, graphic novels you must read before you die and all, all the rest of it. Yeah. So it was one that had... had not passed me by, but I just, you know, there's only so many books a man can buy and there's only so much money to go around. Um, <laughs> sure. So, yeah. So it, it wasn't straight away, but once I had it, my God, it, it is one that just, like you said, it, it drags you in and just, it demands uh, repeat reading for sure. There's just so much depth to it, which we'll be getting into shortly, but it's certainly not, it, it feels very, feels very real, doesn't it? Despite the, the high concept of it and, mutant powers superpowers and all, all that side of things it feels like something happening in the real world to me at least and that was one thing i always was curious about everything well i mean i i know the answer i know why stan lee set the marvel universe in the world instead of in a fictional world and it was because he knew the world <laughs> he could look yeah. out his window in yeah. new york and, and he's admitted he's like I could just be like, oh, I mean, he made up like the Baxter building and the Stryker building and all these other things. But to him, he wanted it to feel lived in. But also, yeah. he wanted you to, to believe that these people could just be living around the corner. And so I think that's part of it is the genius that Stan Lee put in and that is carried on still. But also, all of the things that, that are in this are real. Like the United States Senate is a real thing. And they go on Nightline, which is a real show in America. ABC is a real network in America. So there's, there's, they don't make anything up. It's not like, you know, A, B, D network, you know, it's like, it's, it's on the nose. And so you're like, yeah. Oh, that's even the graphic for nightline. And I don't know how Claremont pulled that shit off, but it's amazing. And I think, I think that's part of what helps is that he sets it in a total real world and you just have to be like, Oh, I watch nightline. Oh, this could be on there. Yeah. Oh, it, it does. It, it, it just, it feels so grounded and yeah. it does. There's no, other than, like I said, other than the, the super-powered element to it, there's nothing that feels like it's part of a, um, a heightened reality. It feels very much like it's something that's happening in your world, in our world, or the, or the 80s world as it was set. It, it doesn't feel like, a, like a, a fantasy book, does it? No, not at all. No, and that is, no. and that is a testament to not only the writing, but the art, because it, sh it should. I mean, and, you know, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, as we go. I mean, I feel like the, the only thing that was, I've got some issues with uh, Kitty a little. I'm a big Kitty Pride fan, but there's some issues with just kind of the way she's drawn in the big baggy suit that she's wearing, the impracticality of that. Like, yeah. it seems more practical that there's a giant silver man than there is, like, this superhero is wearing a clown suit. And I just, <laughs> I never understood that aerial suit. I always, I like the shadow cat suit better. But that, you know, like that's the only thing. And it's so dumb because like you said, there's, it's, it's absurd to think Magneto's doing the things he's doing. I'm in, all in. I don't even question that. The only thing that ever takes me out of it the whole time is Kitty's clown suit. That's stupid, I know. <laughs> not at all, not at all. Um <laughs> So, I mean, oh, God, the, the start of this book is probably, even now, 
with the almost 40 years since it was published it's easily one of the most shocking and really hard-hitting openings to a to a comic to a, a graphic novel or whatever you may call it that i think i've ever seen i mean we can't worry too much about spoilers for a 40 year old book right. and, we'll go for it. <laughs> and <laughs> i'd like to think if people are listening they would have read it by now but i mean my god the opening few pages you see two children two african-american children at that called mark and jill who are it no easier way to say it who are literally um, executed in their sort of school playground, their school jungle gym, whatever you call them um, yeah. over there, by a group that call themselves the Purifiers. And they're literally, their dead bodies are hung around the swings with uh, Muty, uh, which is short for mutant, on there for the, for the world to see. I mean, oh my God, to start a book like that with, with, with children be, being killed in cold blood for, for no reason, other than the fact that they are mutants, which is not not a choice, it's just the way they were they were born. I mean, I mean, what did you first make of that when you when you first read it, and obviously in your subsequent rereads, how does that opening sit with you? Yeah, well, that was that was. I mean, I decided I was buying this book again, and, and you know, in the in the late eighties, early nineties, eight bucks, seven yeah. bucks for a comic was pricey. And there's not even an X Men on the panel yet, and I was like, well, I'm buying this, whatever this is, whatever they're yeah. selling. I'm buying. I was ter- it's terrifying. And the way that the, the kids are drawn, and there's one of the last things you see of them in the panel together is they're like under a slide. They're like nine and eleven. And mm. they're they're clutching each other and they're uh it's just it's just terrifying. And and you knew this was not gonna be this was no lighthearted fair. This was not for eight, nine the nine and eleven year olds in this book wouldn't be reading it. But it, you knew immediately with no preface, no preamble you've got to deal with some serious stuff in this book. And I just thought if you're going to tell a, an uncomfortable story, you might as well go for it. You might as well not dance around mm-hmm. and make us crack, you know, have there be cracking jokes and having fun back, back at the school. We're just getting to it. And so it was really, it was terrifying. And even though I knew it was coming when I reread it for this, I mean, it's one of the, of, in all of comicdom, there's a few things that are in this book that I've never forgotten. Um, something mm-hmm. Logan does later, but in this, that, that scene, I'll never forget that. The look on the kids' faces. It's just, it's like in, on the, you know, in the Hall of Fame of, of intros, without a doubt. Yeah, it is. Um, it's incredibly hard-hitting stuff. It's not something that you can sort of easily forget. It, it sticks with you. And it yeah. literally, like you, like you said, it kind of sets a stall out for the book. It says, this is where we're going with this. This is not going to pull any punches. This is not something a child should be reading. This is adults only fair and get used to it because it's only going to get worse from here. And, you know, there are, I'll mention in a minute, there's, there's other things that come in this book that are, are just as bad. We see the sort of division in the, um, the world. Uh, it's a fictional world, of course, in the book, but I, you know, I think we live in a pretty divisive world at the yeah. moment anyway. Never mind the, what's going on in the world right now. I think before all this, obviously, the, the COVID-19 situation, I think before that, we were living in an incredibly divided world. I agree. And this is quite a reflection of it. But for, not only do we get that side of it, we also get, you know, we get some racial stuff in this book as well. When we see um, the mutants being abused by just some local people, some local ne'er-do-wells, calling them names, calling them muties, mutant lovers, things like that. And one of the girls takes exception to it and and her friend is trying to calm her down. Not a mutant character, the, um, oh, I forget the girl's name now, the um, the African-American lady who's uh, in charge there. Of the, uh, that's the one, yeah. And she says, oh, they're just, what they're saying, it's just words, you know, words, words don't hurt you. It's, you know, the old sticks and stones yeah. scenario. But she says, well, what if they were to call me an, n-word lover i won't say the word yeah. um but they do use the word in the book i mean again that's yeah, yeah. I, I mean you've had in the first literally five pages you've had what we've just talked about and now you get this i mean flipping heck, this is not something you would see very often especially in a marvel book as well before during or since that time so when you see that as well i mean what's your reaction when you're seeing this kind of language yeah, well, I actually one thing that I, before before Kitty says that to Stevie, because Kitty's hanging out with her, and um, 
Peter's sister, Colossus's sister is there. One thing that I that struck me, and I'd never noticed this before, and again, this is why this show is so great, because you go back, you know, your other two, I've gone back and reread the stuff that you guys did, and this is what the joy of what nerds do, right? We, we like go back and we see things. And I've never thought about it, and I don't remember in all my time, and I'm not an X-Men aficionado, like I don't know. I've What I don't know is way more than I do know in X-Men lore. The kitty's wearing a Star of David in this. Mm -hmm. And I'd never, I don't know that I knew that, that Kitty was Jewish. And I just thought that actually added an extra layer on top of it. Because of course, you know, this is the time when she and Peter uh, Colossus are kind of an on again, off again thing, which is the Mm. thing notwithstanding being a little creepy. Um, Mm. You know, like this was during the Soviet Union. Um, You know, there are lots of Russian Jews, but there's also lots of, um, you know, anti-Semitism in Russia. So it was just such an interesting choice that, that, like on full display, if you want to look for it, in these two panels on like page six or something, Kitty's wearing the Star David while she's yeah. fighting with this guy for being an anti-mutant. And then she's saying it's the same as being a racist. And so here she is. She's like a triple minority. She's a woman, she's a Jew, and she's a mutant. And, yeah. and so, you know, and then her best friend here is this, is this African-American woman. So it was just really startling. And, and again, bold. I'd imagine there are people who were like, man, I want to watch my superheroes just punch bad guys. I don't want to watch my superheroes have a commentary on, uh, on race. But it was right there. And I, I love that he did it because at no point did he want us to pretend what this book was, was not. He didn't want us to be able to go, oh, you can see the racism stuff in there. You can see the sexism in there if you want to see it. And he's like, nope, I, I want you to see it right from the jump. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think the language is, is gratuitously used. No, I no. Pro- I think it's appropriate for the story to tell. 100%. You know, I think- yeah, it suits the narrative of the story. I mean, it's it's nothing that anyone wants to read and and hear, but it kind of reflects where the story's going and and the state of the society that Claremont was trying to portray. At least that's what I think. Oh, I agree. I agree because yeah. that character is not in it again, CD. No, she's, no, she's there, and and when the last thing you see of her face is she's crying because kitty's right what kitty says is what's the difference what he's saying to me as a mutant what if he said this about you what if he said i was you know this and uses the n-word to a to an african-american woman i mean this kitty says that to her and when she's like no you're right and it was just like just heartbreaking and it was important and i think i think that's the thing about language and um Ooh. on my show we're doing we mike burton and i are covering a book called uh second coming and there's some there's some pretty slanderous words used in there too. And, and he and I talk about that on, on the show too. And again, I think sometimes you know what the intent of the writer is. Chris Claremont yeah. here is, um, is he wants to make you uncomfortable. He's not, he's not glorifying that word. He's not, he would never say that. It would never come out of his mouth. You can tell it was yeah. intentional to, to prove a point. And I think if you do that, if you keep your powder dry and you use it like this way, instead of like the way Tarantino uses it, it, it means something here. Whereas like, I get all the criticism against Tarantino for, I think it's too much. I think it's too, and it's like, oh, well, it's because of whatever. Well, you know, mm. you're using, I think yeah. sometimes you use these, this kind of horrific language and these horrific images that they use in this book. Sometimes people use that for shock value. And I think Claremont wants to shock us to pay attention instead of shock us to sell books. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see what you, I can see what you mean by that. It's, it's, it puts it front and center and doesn't really pull any punches. And I can see that maybe some people would probably be turned off from reading the book because of the, the opening few pages. They might think this isn't for me. Like you said, I just want to see my heroes in the spandex sort of thumping each other through, <laughs> through buildings and, right. and what have, and what have you all fighting off an alien invasion or something like that. But this is, Certainly not that, shall we say. Right. Well, and even in the other, and I'm sure at some point you'll do Dark Phoenix, but again, another heavy X-Men thing where there is an alien invasion, but there's also a genocide. I mean, you can't just, Ooh. you can't yeah. just, you can't, he's not messing around, you know? And I just think no. that's, I think it was brave and it's what makes him the man. I mean, we can say that that Stanley invented the X-Men, but Chris Claremont brought him to the party. I th- yeah, I think he, he took what was already there and took it to a whole new level, I think. Yeah, that's right. Definitely. Because yeah, the definitely. old, you know, the original X-Men, Beast was a blue fuzzy thing. And there was just, you know, five white kids. Chris yeah. Claremont said, that's silly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, he certainly uh, changed it up, made it a lot more cosmopolitan, a lot more inclusive. Yeah, he definitely took what was already something special and made it even more special, I would I say. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, so obviously we, we sort of, as the plot goes on, we begin to find out that 
this um, this group, these these purifiers, as they call themselves, are working for William Stryker or Reverend William Stryker, as he's uh, known, who's like this fire and brimstone far right Christian fundamentalist preacher with a you know one of these old time gospel television shows preaching the word of God, claiming that mutants are abominations in the eyes of God, and is more nefarious scheme will become apparent as the story goes on but I mean where what do you think of that character and and well his motivation I mean we learn about his his tragic backstory with his his wife and the newborn son uh, and what he did uh, with um, his, his wife and his son when he found out that his son was in fact born a mutant and you you think that maybe it was a result of his time in the in the services with the um, working on them um, nuclear testing and, and maybe that was what caused his son to uh, become a mutant i mean what what is, were your thoughts on the character of striker what do you think of him and his and his his point of view and is it do you think he's just a, a result of the the tragedy that befell him or is he is he evil what do you think of striker this is a good question because i be, i think he's evil but Me too. but but the question you ask is is he believes he's a result of of his the events that have befallen him Mm. Um, but he's not. We know in the X-Men universe, and even if this is the only X-Men book you've ever read, it's Claremont is word heavy. Um, he makes sure you know he doesn't leave anything to chance. So there's a line yeah. in here explaining that humans are homo sapiens and, and mm -hmm. mutants are homo superior. There are different yes. species. So, so it's explained that it is human evolution. It has nothing to do with nuclear fallout. It's explained in here. So for him to say, well, it was because of this or because of this, because of this. I mean, in that scene where he, where he kills his own son for being born a mutant, he also kills his wife. Mm -hmm. um, and you yeah. could argue, you could look at that two ways. And this is why I think he's just pure evil. Is it because he doesn't kill his wife to like spare her from the fact that he killed his son? I think in that moment, he kills his wife because he blames her. Because yeah. he's... he's of course, pure white guy, and his wife must be the mutant. And the only reason they could have a mutant child is because of her. That's what I think. And it's like, so there's, so even though in his mind, um, he's called from God and he thinks it could be someone else's fault, uh, now he's just pure, unadulterated evil um, who hides behind religion because it's easy. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, I mean, he even says that what you're saying, you think he, he blames his wife. He's very explicit in that. Um, I'm just looking at the passage now where it goes back to his story. And he says the evil, the sin was Marcy's, uh, not Marcy. Oh, right, Marcy, he does say that. You're Marcy right. Marcy being his wife. Uh, he says she was the vessel used by God to reveal unto me Satan's most insidious plot against Ugh. humanity to <laughs> corrupt us through our children while they were still in the womb. So he obviously real in his mind at least like you just said he he thinks that it was his wife's sin it was maybe satan or god punishing his wife for maybe past transgressions and giving her a mutant son and he sort of in his own mind able to absolve himself of it and make it then his life's mission to to rid the world of mutants i mean he is one twisted evil piece of work I think. Oh yeah, and I think, and again, I'm not, it's such a tough, it's an interesting commentary on the faithful because yeah. he lathers these people up, but, but he is really truly a reverend. It's not like, that's not fake. And, and you know, anytime you see televangelism, it freaks me mm. out. I, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like that's not how that's supposed to be done probably. And so, yeah. uh, but the people who believe, and this is the hard thing, is he's, his followers they truly believe that he is a vessel for God and that he's what yeah. he's saying is, is the word of God. When of course he, and he may even delusionally think that too, but he knows mm -hmm. he's manipulating people. He's aware of, of what, the medium that he's using. It's just, it's so creepy because, you know, my question is, is always about like, we can say he's evil, but what about his followers? Are they evil? Is, do you think that's resolved? I think his followers are, are not being misled by him. I think they're quite aware of what it is they're being asked to do. At, at least, well, not necessarily his followers, more his accomplices who are the Oh, ones sure. Yeah, the purifiers. The yeah, they're, they're not being, they're as bad as he is. They know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, his, his followers, I wouldn't necessarily say his entire followers, his entire congregation are, are evil. I think they're perhaps scared by the environment they find themselves in and scared by the uncertainty and probably, you know, I think if 
if this was a real world setting and all of a sudden people started to emerge with mutant powers, uh, if the likes of you or I were not one of those people and we were just normal, quote unquote normal, whatever it normal is, um, <laughs> humans, we by ourselves would probably be quite frightened by such a thing. At least I, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we would. So I think he, they just latch on to his message, I think, rather than maybe some of them are, but I think as a whole, maybe they're just scared people worried about the future who are, you know, trying to find some comfort in what he's saying and he's latching onto that. Do you think that? I do. I do. I think that that's true. I think, and that is, it's a tough call because again, he's, it, what makes it scarier and makes it a, a harder moral question that Claremont wants us, I think, to grapple with is that he is, Stryker is Reverend Stryker. He's not Sergeant, he's not the military Stryker guy, the, the one that they use in all the movies. Um, mm -hmm. It's the same guy that they use, but, you know, we're seeing him at a different stage of his career. So he's not, this isn't a military coup. He's, he's using something that people, that's important to people. And he is manipulating them, I think, using faith. But he also knows that it's easy to manipulate people using faith because faith is unseeable. You have mm. to just believe, you know, and before their eyes in this universe, there's a flying woman who can mm. make lightning happen. And there's a giant silver guy and there's a, a blue guy with ears who can poof out of existence, right? And they see that happen. <laughs> yeah. So of course then, I mean, in a universe where those things happen, it's easy to believe that God's real and that this guy is, is using that. So I think, I think they think they're doing the right thing. They're, they're yeah. going, that's what we do when we're scared. We go to, we go to the things that bring us comfort. And um, yeah. whether it's faith, whether it's our family, whether it's an old comic book, we, we go to the things that we, we literally like put on like an old blanket and yeah, um, yeah. strikers manipulating them. And it's tough because you can't say, and, and I think Claremont wants us to think that, right? It's like anytime a soldier does something bad and because the country that he or she represents uh, tells him or her to do it, you're like, well, you could have said no, but could I? I'm a private in the army and the, millet, the general says, point your gun and shoot it. I don't think twice mm -hmm. about it. I just do it. Um, yeah. But, you know, like, if, if there was just one person standing in the street, you wouldn't just go shoot that person. But you would do it because your commanding officer tells you to. And it's, I think that's what he wants us to look at. It's like, what do you have faith in? Is it you have faith in your leaders? If you have faith in... And he could have easily written this with Stryker as that military guy. This is a military yeah. coup. But he chose to make him a, a televangelist Stryker so that it's, it's a little more nuanced. And then it's a less, lot less black and white i think yeah i would say so i mean i don't think he's definitely he's definitively making some kind of derogatory statement or taking a derogatory stance against religion and and that type of religion right necessarily necessarily anyway i mean I would, you know without know, knowing the man and knowing what his inner motivations are we you know i wouldn't know for sure but i think he's just like you said he's using that as the tool to create this story and create that message and i i think from my own point of view i'm, I'm not I'm not a religious man, but I'm not completely 100% shut down to the idea of something uh, existing. I'm, you know, I've, I've never seen any evidence of it, so it's hard for me to believe in something I've never seen. Just go off pure faith, but I'm not going to knock anyone else for that. That's that's up to them, and if they find comfort in that or they want to live their life that way, then more power to them. That's that's fantastic. I think I only have a problem with it in. It kind of like in this book when it becomes a, a tool for hate and a, ves a vessel to spread hatred. I think it should be a vessel to spread love and happiness personally. But right, which is what the title is, right? God loves. Yeah, him. yeah, for sure. Ex exactly. Yeah, I think he, he's. In, in fact, yeah, that's quite what you said there. I think that very title says it's. Although this is a man of God doing these sort of unspeakable things in this book. It's not God doing it. God is supposed to love. God is supposed to be the the forgiver, the redeemer, uh, all the rest of it. It's man that ultimately does the evil on on earth. So, yeah, maybe maybe that is his thoughts behind it. And I think it's really well executed. I don't think he goes to. I think this whole book is sort of walking a razor's edge um, yeah. from start to finish. Yeah some of the things it depicts and some of the sort of comments it tries to make. But I don't think at any point he falls off the razor's edge. I think he just about manages to not go too far in one direction to royally offend or alienate people who are from that walk of life, which is fine. You should never try to do that. I just think it's really well done. I think 
you know, what I agree with what you said about it. The more you read it, I think the more it kind of makes sense to go that way. I don't think he's uh, attacking fundamentalist uh, religions or far right religion or televangelism per se. I think he's just used that as a, as a great vehicle to tell the story and, and to use the villain to go down that path, like you say, rather than another government spook or another, you know, uh, rogue it's a rogue military scientist or something like that. I think it's um, I think it's well done. Yeah, I, the one thing I always wondered about in the re- in the other parts of the X Men universe, not this story, Kurt uh, Nightcrawler is very religious, and he's that doesn't come up in here. And I almost like it, it isn't. It, if you didn't know, you wouldn't know. Like there's not mm-hmm. like, there's not moments where Kurt waxes poetical about still having faith and and you know the argument. I think in some series it's it's debated whether or not he would have joined the priesthood had he could. But yeah. of course, obviously, blue demons with three toes aren't aren't allowed in the priesthood. <laughs> yeah, which might be frowned upon. People, I know. I mean, typical Catholics keeping people out. No, but he uh, he. Uh, <laughs> I, I I always that was one thing. I but there's so much. It's so dense already. I get why he he left it there. And it's just kind of you know when I read it again this time, I I kept thinking like kept waiting for Kurt to say something and he didn't um but i you know you didn't need to because and maybe maybe that was intentional because like you said it leaves it a little more morally ambiguous because you know he's such a sympathetic character always but in this yeah. book in particular he is because he's the only one who doesn't look human like the rest of them do the rest of them can air quote pass as human but kurt never can and on the no. cover like the secondary cover it's like you call that thing human and then that's later in the book too you know when striker sees kurt and so so it would have been a great but it might have been maybe two on the nose. Maybe the editors were like, well, let's let them figure yeah. that out. I don't know. I always just wondered about yeah. that. No, it's a very valid point for sure. I've always found the Nightcrawler character to be one of the most, probably one of the most moral characters in, in the X-Men for sure. You know, he, he tends to not have as much of a, a, a dark side, a, you know, a moral shade of grey as, as perhaps the others. He is a kind of a, a moral absolute, despite his, like you said, his uh, demonic exterior inside yeah. he's anything but isn't he that's right that's absolutely right and that's always what makes him appealing right he's if he's not everybody's favorite he's like everybody's second favorite x-men right i mean everybody there's nobody who's like you know who i hate the x-men nightcrawler i'm just like yeah. love that guy bamfity bamf yeah and he just is always so pleasant uh, and it was it's important right too with that with that dynamic of a team it's always important to have somebody who's willing to calm everybody down and that's always kind of his role too yes yeah. to just be the like voice of reason like hey everybody let's just Let's hang out and have popcorn and it'll be fine. Um, yeah, so, so, and he, you know, and he, and even in this, you know, there's a, there's a scene where he's, he's trying to scare somebody. And even at the end of that, he can't follow through with his own threats. Like it was just like a, a nice insight into the character when he's like, got the guy by the neck and he's like, looking like he's going to scare him. And then he just pokes him in the face with his tail. Just like, come on. <laughs> yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's, he's never the, um, he's never the star of the show. Not very often, but he's always got something, something to bring to the party. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a definitely a fan of Nightcrawler. For sure. I, I can't wait to see, well, hope, hope so at least, uh, as and when they bring the X-Men into the cinematic universe. I hope that character is represented. But, I hope so too. Yeah. Who knows? It depends um, what kind of era they're going to go with, but I suppose that's all. If Sanan's at the minute making films, it's not happening for anyone at the moment. Right, so, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, just <laughs> watch, Christ. yeah, just animated versions and... Uh... Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, okay, so what we'll do now is perhaps have a, a think about the, the look of the book and the writing of the book. So let's talk about first about the art from Brent Anderson. I think it's wonderfully involved stuff. It's vivid. To me, it looks, it looks real. It looks lived in. Uh, the way he 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 draws the scene, it doesn't look like. Um, I think we mentioned earlier. It's despite the, the the high concept, the ridiculous nature of of the story, it it, it feels very much like a, a contemporary setting. I mean, are you a fan of his art, or is is do you prefer a different kind of style, or, or what do you think of the way he he does it? No, I do. I do like it. Like I said, the only my only issue is, and, and it's not in every scene that Kitty's in her aerial suit. <laughs> yeah it's some of kitty's like sometimes it looks like her suit fits and other times it looks like she's dressed up like a clown and i just hate it but it, but i think part of that too is the nature of the way he draws the people like their clothes 
for the most part, and this is such a weird thing to talk about, <laughs> but their clothes seem to fit. And I think that's why it's so noticeable in those scenes where Kitty's suit's like billowing around her. Because the rest of the yeah. time, like, like you said, I think what makes it real, if you're going to draw a universe where a guy is five foot three and has metal claws coming out of his hands, he should look, be, he should have space. It should be low on the panel, but, and his clothes should be tight yeah. because they would be. And it's not just like gratuitous, like... You know, and again, not to, I like Jay Lee. He's fantastic. But like Jay Lee, because, you know, he's went to medical school and he's like, everything is like so intricately detailed. And I think what, what this does is he, he spends a lot of detail on like the shading or the way, yeah. the way the light falls on somebody or the way that Kitty's hair moves and is a mess. Yeah. And, I, and those are the details. He's more interested in making the, them look like people than he yeah. in filling their proper space that they should fill instead of making them just look like jacked up superheroes he doesn't nobody's over and i get you know again kitty's a teenager she's like 15 or 16 in this so i'm glad she's not overly sexualized i don't want that but i but it just it's like again the weird balloon suit when it happens but um i really definitely think he he makes them feel their age and he he draws them again if you would see them walking down the street because it looks real yeah yeah they don't look like supermen do they for want of a, of a better word that's a whole different universe yeah. but they they don't they look like like you say people you'd see down the street they look like you and i they don't look other than the costumes they're wearing they don't look larger than life do they there's a very real tangible depiction going on here and I, i'm a i'm a huge fan of it i really am i, I like this style because i think the more you go down that way, I think the easier it is, at least for me and the, the way I read, it's easier for me to buy it. It's easier for me to invest myself in it because I, it doesn't feel like something that's in a, in a fantasy realm. Does that, do, you know, do you know what I mean? It, I do. Just, yeah. And I, yeah. and I think even so, so cause there, because it's New York, so it looks like New York, but also like yeah. there's a couple of car crashes in this thing that look like car crashes. Like when, yeah. and, and he, and there's, they actually like explain the physics of it when, um, there's a runaway car. The woman's going to try to like make herself a martyr and Kurt saves her. And then Peter smashes the car. It's all like, they, there's a whole conversation about how to get her out. So she doesn't die. It's not like bad eighties act, action movie where you just roll down a hill, you know, and it's <laughs> like, like at Hudson, the end of Hudson Hawk airbags in the back. Can you fucking <laughs> it? It's not like that absurd. And I love Hudson Hawk. Don't get me wrong. I love that movie, but it's like, you know, the absurdity of, of course you survived a limo going off a cliff because of an airbag. There's none of that. Like there's the stakes are always real. So even the car crashes look real. And there's a, in that panel where Peter rips the engine out, you like see a twisted tire and it looks shredded. It's just so good. Like those are the details that they, that he, that he chose to focus on. And I think that makes it feel uh, again, more immediate and you're like, well, damn, that's on, that could have happened. There's like, even the way that things drip, it, it's just so thoughtful. No, it is. It, to me, there's not a wasted panel in this, in this book. Uh, it's all done. It's not, it's not overly embellished. It's quite economical. But at the same time, there just seems to be so much detail in there. Well, it's quite a unique method, really. It's, it's not crowded, but yet there seems to be so much going on at the same time. I just think it's a, a genius piece of, um, of art, the whole book. I think I'm a really big fan of the way it's drawn. And I'd love more books to look like this now. I really would. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's exactly right. It is. There's nothing, even even some of the scenes that, that have like accidents or there's big fight scenes, um, even yeah. when they're in the danger room, there's a danger room scene in here. They, they, he goes out of his way to split those panels up so he's not trying to like have three layers of things instead of trying to do a big, I don't think there's a splash page in the book either, which again no. is, is amazing for a story this big to not have a splash page, to, to do everything. Your word was economical in these little boxes. So there's like when Anne, the, the leader of the purifier, shows up at the, at the school and Kitty's hiding in the woods and she thinks mm-hmm. she's going to shoot, uh, what's her name, Ileana? Ile- yeah. Like there's a cut on it's like Kitty's face and it's like there's hardly anything in there. It's just a profile of a screaming face and it tells you everything you need to know in just this one panel. It's just so good. Really, I mean, honestly, I'm not, I don't know much about this artist. Um, I'm sure during the 80s and 90s, I probably saw a lot of him, but this, this in particular is, you know, like a masterpiece. Like you said, it's, it's just a giant work of art. It is. It is. It's something that, you know, belongs on a wall rather than in a book, I, I, I think, anyway. Okay, so 
obviously you don't have one without the other. The art goes with the writing. Now, Chris Claremont is, at least in, in my opinion anyway, he is the ex- definitive X-Men writer. We, we spoke about that earlier, saying he yeah. took what was, or what was there and took it where it had never been before, took it up a, a level or several levels. To me, the, it doesn't get better than his writing. He has that articulate style. Like you said a few minutes ago, he's very word-heavy. He's not economical with his writing. Do you like that? Are you a fan of that kind of style? Or do you prefer it to be... Do you prefer pages and panels that are less dialogue-heavy and, and more about the imagery? Or do you like it where the writer gives you gives you value for money, I should say? Is that your bag? That is a, that's an excellent... I think it depends on how it's done. And even mm-hmm. in this particular book, when they're talking, the exposition doesn't always feel like... I'm, I'm exposition man here to explain. I don't feel like it's that. It's not, it, there's definitely some writers where that feels like I'm going to say these words um, when I normally wouldn't. Uh, and I, I don't feel that. My problem is the, in the thought bubbles. I think that's when he needed, somebody needed to be like, okay, let's show that instead of tell that. Yeah. Because you've got an excellent artist who can, who can do. So for example, in that panel that I was just talking about, I pulled it up here. So Kitty's like, there's a gunshot. All the commotion. Ileana. Okay. We see in the panel above and the leader of the purifier shoot. If we had just seen Kitty's face, that would have been enough for me. The thought bubble of that was a gunshot. Well, literally on the page, the way that it's laid out right above it, it says, bam. Like the next thing down you see is that. So I didn't need that. That's the one thing that Claremont does. I recently reread before that Abomination Dark Phoenix came out. I went and reread Dark Phoenix. I'm glad I did because, boy, was that movie awful. Um, at least <laughs> I got to reread the comic. So <laughs> felt good about that. But I, the same thing there. There's lots of, oh, no, Gene, this, you wouldn't do something like this. This is, you know, and it's like Scott thinking way too much. And again, I get it. I get that you, the reader may not necessarily know everything. So in some cases, if you're telling backstory with a thought bubble, it's fine. But literally like on that page, which again, I love that image of Kitty's face. It's so beautifully done. I didn't need the thought bubble. The panel would have done the work for me. And I know this is is a product of its time. It's when it was, this is just how it was done. So I could, it's not like I love to read. It's not like I'm against the words. It's just sometimes I think as I ramble on with my answer, I should take my own advice. You know, sometimes I think less is more. Yeah, um, I, 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 I do sometimes think that. I mean, it's not, I think it's not a book that you can read half-assed. It's, no. you've, got, you've got to sit and you've got to read it. You can't, have, you can't be flicking through this while you're watching a football game on the TV or you've got music on in the background or you've got um, your other half sat with you or, or kids playing around. You've got to properly sit and read this because it is so word heavy. It's not. It's not where you you can look at the sort of the image, images going on and, and, and ascertain what's going on and not have to really give everything to read it. This approach is really involved and demands your commitment, I think. But I do, I do like that. I do like a well-written story like that because it's one of these that quite a lot of, of, of graphic novels and, and comics have been converted to um, to prose, haven't they? To, to, to prose writing. The show I did in episode two where I covered Kingdom Come with Dave, that, you know, that's been converted to a, a prose book, which I, I recently uh, picked up. I've not read yet. And oh, I this, would like to check that out. Yeah, it yeah, is. it's yeah. Um, it's good. Uh, well, from the sort of brief bit I've read, at least, yeah. it's, it's really well done. It's, and it gives you more than you got in the book because it, obviously it's able to expand a lot more and inside people's sort of thought processes but i think something like this would would work as like that as well it's there's that much to it and i, I know what you mean sometimes less is more and like you said if you ha- if you can't commit to to sitting down and giving it everything you've got then you know you're gonna miss out it's just i think sometimes it's a, a balancing act isn't it you've got to you can't go too far one way or the other i think you just you've got to find that perfect mixture that perfect recipe for giving both sides of it do you think I think that's right. I think one of the, and, and it's, it's funny, there's still people who write like this. Scotty Lebdell writes like this still. I don't yes. know. Um, and he still is big. Um, he likes words. And, uh, you know, and, and I think he's really funny. I think what he does with Red Hood is really funny. I think, but sometimes I notice when I read that book, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, especially when like Bizarro's thinking, is Woody? Hmm. 
can we just watch him do stuff? Like, do we need like Bizarro and blah? I'm like, I don't know. And it just, it's, it's, but he's, he's still in that style of writer, which not every writer does. Some writers are just like, I'm just gonna let you see it. And I'm sure it all depends. And I don't know the process either. That's part of it too. I don't yeah. know enough to know if Chris wrote this and then it was drawn later. And so all of those words were there to allow the artist the opportunity to do his work or if Chris was like, here's a basic outline, he draws it up and then Chris goes in and adds dialogue. My contention is probably it's more the former because Claremont is such a writer. He's a writer yeah. first that, um, you know, before he's even a storyteller, he wants to write. He wants to write the thing. And then, you know, the story's in there, but he, like you said, he's, he's word heavy and that's okay. I'm, I'm fine with that. I think he gives, because he is the definitive, the reason we love Kurt so much is because Kurt talks so much. The reason we like we understand who these characters are because he gives them a voice. They're not just like walking around making faces. So I don't know. It could just have been a process situation too. And then afterwards it's like, I'm just leaving that in there. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. He writes like, um, like a, like a novelist would write, doesn't he? he yeah. He's right. He doesn't seem to write like a, um, a, an inverted commas speech marks, a comic book writer. If yeah. that makes sense. He, yeah. He, 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 he doesn't write like you would, perhaps in your mind think how like a, a Jeff Johns or a Scott Snyder or, or even an Alan Moore would write. He, yeah, he writes, he writes as though he's writing it down to be in a, in a, in a prose book with no illustration. He get, he puts it all on the page, doesn't he? Yeah. And I think, and I think that just because he's him and he's so talented, I'm sure that's just part of the deal. It just stays. Yeah. Um, but again, it's if, because if I'm reading it, like you said, a prose version of this novelization of God loves May kills, I need Kitty to think, oh my God, was that a gunshot? Because Kitty's in a different space. Like physically, she's in a different space. She's hiding. Iliana's over here. Of course, Kitty would hear bang and Kitty would be like, oh my God, was that a gunshot? But we're seeing it happen. So it's it's the visual element that that I think sometimes, and it's gotta be hard because he wrote all these words. You want them to be there. Um, yeah. Who am I to shit on the master? But it's, it's <laughs> that's just, that's my only, my only problem is sometimes I love it. The, the, there's the scene a couple pages later when Logan's got his fist under the guy's chin and he mm. does the snicket. There's one, there's two. This was the other thing that I'd never forgotten about this book. And he says, you want to go for three? Yes. And again, in that line, those, that him saying that out loud, there's one, like you could have just shown that. And then in the third panel, just say, you want to go for three? But I kind of love it because you could hear him like growling at him and really trying to scare him because that's outside. So that makes, like, I think Claremont's dialogue, external dialogue is just, fantastic and and but i just think it's those inside thought bubbles sometimes he needs to dial those back but but i mean there's just so much great great dialogue that's snappy and funny and heartbreaking it's just it's so great it is it is it's um it's definitely one that like we said it it demands your attention but i think the more you the more you give the more you'll get out of it if the rewards are there if you for want of a better word, submit yourself to it. Yeah, I think, I think and I think um, if, yeah. if you don't give it the attention, like you say, that it demands, then I don't think you're even going to like it. I don't no. think you'd know what was going on. If you half-assed, re, re, because if you're not paying attention, why are they working with Magneto? And then at the end, yeah. there's the, you know, like the big speech that Scott gives. And if you haven't been paying attention, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah no, if this, this is what, an 80-page book that needs, you know, a while some 80 page yeah. comic books you could get through in half an hour yeah exactly yeah uh, easily whereas this is you know it's double that or even triple that it's you know yeah. there's a lot of meat there's a lot of meat on the bone for sure and obviously this book was it essentially although quite loosely uh, drawn from the the basis for the second x-men film x-men 2 which was out in 2002 2003 something like that which when people sort of asked, are asked, oh, what's your favourite of all the X-Men films, new ones, old ones, the X-Men 2 tends to be the one that people say, that's my, that's my favourite. Uh, and the depiction of Strike, William Stryker character in that like, is a little bit different. It was what, like what you were saying earlier with making him um, a, a military soldier guy as opposed to the, the Christian fundamentalist that he is. In the film, they completely went that other way. They took away the religious side of it, the Christian side of it, and made him a, a, a military scientist or something like that, if memory serves. And, and changed the, the, the son as well to be alive and well and like his sort of secret lab rat weapon. Um, yeah. Although his, end, his sort of end game was still the same. He wanted to use Xavier and use Xavier's powers with 
Cerebro to basically kill every mutant on Earth and then obviously it gets switched to the other way around yeah. uh, with uh, Magneto's influence. Are you a fan of uh, X-Men 2 and the, the the version of Striker that you see uh, in that film with the, the similarities and differences as opposed to, but which one do you prefer? I prefer this one. I prefer the yeah. comic version. I do, I mean, you're not wrong. That is my everybody's favorite X-Men movie, I think. Uh, first class, maybe, is it? Is yeah. it? close second but of the original trilogy for sure x-men 2 oh. is, is i mean it's not even a question of how good no, that comes, is comes yeah. down. um i think again i think it just it's it's movies are not appealing to just comic book nerds and so comic book nerds and people who read and again you have to be wanting to read to read a chris claremont book are more willing to take the time to deal with the complexities of Stryker being a religious figure. Yeah. In a comic book movie, again, that people are just going to watch Hugh Jackman in tight pants punch things. Um, yeah. they're, they're not ready for that. And I think, I think it was, I understand why the change was, changes were made. It's easier, it's safer. Everybody can be like, oh, military people can be bad, even though, you know, that's silly to think but it's it's a trope but to tell a comic book movie in an hour and a half or two hours where the the villain is an evangelical preacher mm. i just don't think i think that would have been and even if and i don't know the process but maybe they tried and uh fox was like no nah, we're not doing that we're not going to do that yeah I th- I, yeah i agree with you I, I, like you said i don't think within the confines of a film you've got the time to to tell that story and, and give the character that amount of legs where whereas in the the film he becomes he comes out literally fully formed at the start at the White House speaking to the president saying you know I need you to sign off on this and then he starts his planning motion with kidnapping the the various um, the various mutants I, I do like the the version in the film I think the the portrayal by the actor Brian Cox is really good as well oh, he makes, absolutely he, he makes a great villain in it but I just think his character in that is I wouldn't say it was two-dimensional because I, that would be a, a, an insult to the actor and and the film which and it's not true to begin with but I think when you compare it to the film there's so much um, sorry you compare the film to the book there's so much more depth to the to the book and the character you, you 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 tend to get more into the brain of the man rather than what you see in the film as great as the film is don't get me wrong, oh I yeah yeah oh i agree and i think if, if no yeah. one had ever read this they would be i think people who've never read this still think x2 is a fine is a good movie it is a good movie and that's it is it's always hard right i mean i'm of the opinion that i you know i used to be kind of a book snob where i was like oh just read the books but hmm. you know if if people make a movie and it makes people go read the book. Well, that's a good thing, right? I mean, if you, so in this, which I don't remember which one it was in, in um, Days, the, well, the Days of Futures Past movie that was mm-hmm. loosely based on Days of Futures Past. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, yeah. The book, but yeah. that means people went back and read the book again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even, I remember Peter Dinklage was on The Daily Show promoting it because he's in that movie. And he was yeah. even, he even said, it's like, you should go read the book. He said that. He's like, yeah. You should read it because it's so much, it's so good. So even the actor in the film who wants you to go see his film, he's still like, you should read this book because it's so good. So I think anytime something like that happens, you know, X2 comes out, people find out, people who miss this, found out about it, they go back and read it and then get that that point of view. So to me, anything that gets people to go back and read the comics, that's always a good, that's good. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, one leads to the other and, yeah. and whichever way someone comes to it, whether they come through it because they're they're a diehard a book fan and 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 have always loved it or you know they someone who happens to fall in love with the films and think oh well, what what else is there what's next you know what right i really love these characters i'm seeing in the film where where can i find out more and if that leads them to start buying books and reading books then mission accomplished as far as i'm concerned yeah well and you know it's funny people say people complain you know it's like and again i'm with you the x2 is fine this is better but x2 is a great movie but people complain like that they're like oh well the book the movie blah 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 but then when scott snyder shows up or zach snyder excuse me shows up and does an exact replica of the comic book like people hate that they're like this movie Mm. is so like watchmen is slow it's paced well but because he's not cutting anything until the end, you know, it's like he's the first part of that is like, here's the panel from the comic. It's on screen. Here's mm. like people get mad at Scott at, at Zack Snyder for for being too literal. It's like, well, why do his movies suck? They don't. He's giving you what you want. You wanted the panel yeah. for panel comic book movie. He gave that to you, and now you're complaining that it's paced slowly. Well, comic yeah. books are paced slowly because they're supposed to be over a year. This is a story that took place over hundreds of pages, not 
90 mm. minutes. So sometimes you just kind of have to trust that film is just a different uh, beast. And uh, again, the message is still the same in both, right? That, yeah. You know, and that's the most important thing is this message of, you know, mutants. You just, you can't help how you're born. Yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. And um, I think like we touched on at the, at the top of the show, the message in this book and, and the, the, the themes of this book, I don't think have ever been more relevant than they are today. I don't think that uh, in the 38 years since this was um, put out on, on um, bookstore shelves, I don't think it's ever been a, a more accurate reflection of the world we're living in. I really don't. I don't think the world's ever been a more divided place than it is now, you know, economically, racially, any other way you want to look at it than it is. I, I think the world's more divided than it's ever been. And I think if you read this book, granted it's a um, quote-unquote comic book story, a sci-fi story, you know, superpowered people don't exist in the real world. Or maybe they do. And maybe they, they do, yeah. Maybe they do, then they just haven't come to the fore yet. I'm still holding on to the fact that maybe they will. <laughs> but it, the book is is a reflection of a, of, a, of a broken society that, I'm not saying the world's broken now, but it's it, it needs a bit of fixing. I agree. I agree. And you know what? I think the character of Anne, the head purifier and her journey is again, I think it, 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 you know, she's a monster the whole time. She's a monster. And I think what is what Claremont does, the twist with her at the end is so good because she could be the, the avatar that people needed. Like the people who were like, like you said earlier, of course you're scared of these fucking giant silver man or you know a a girl who can walk through walls that's freaky we as comic nerds may be like sweet but most (laughs) most people would be like what that girl could just walk right in here and kill me in my sleep that's what they would think because that's how human you overreact and she wouldn't do that because she's kitty but you wouldn't know that because you're scared and so and you know, because she's a monster, but she, you know, she's the one who kills the kids, Mark and Jill at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to have her journey come down that she's a mutant at the end, what a reveal. And, yeah. and the way that she's disposed of by Stryker is just, mm. again, it's so bone chilling. Like, dude, that's cold. That is, that is so, but of course that's what he'd do because he's a true believer. And in like, so for her 30 seconds between the time her ears bleed and the time he breaks her neck, yeah. she has to reconcile all the terrible things she's done. And it is, and it's a mirror for us to look at ourselves and be like, be her for just a second. In these 30 seconds, if you had 30 seconds to reconcile all the terrible shit that you did, how would you feel about all yeah. of your actions? And I think, you know, she's supposed to be that person for us to be like, well, maybe I need to quit being such a dick all the time because yikes. absolutely yeah Uh, it's quite quite a pivotal bit part at the end there with Anne you know like you said she's been a a beyond evil in in throughout the course of it but she blindly believes in what she's doing and blindly follows his his will and then that sort of epiphany moment at the end where she realizes shit I'm one of the people I've been killing you know in a in a different world it would be me who would have been uh, killed at the start of the book and strung up when I was a child, you know, if, if the world had, had known who I was and what I could do. So it's, it's quite a thing really for someone to go through. Yeah. And, and I think it's, and again, it's, it's what makes this book just no BS. There's no, it's great. And that's hard to, you know, and it's like, I, I know we're painting such a dour picture, but it's so important <laughs> to read. And, and um, yeah. because, because sometimes you even your art needs to be honest and it needs to make you stop and think. And, and yes, I'm all for explosions and I'm fine to go sit down and just watch, you know, kick ass. I love that. Yeah. You know, that's just absurd. There's, there's room for those kinds of comic book superheroes too. But, but this story, and that's what the X-Men have always been. They're not just superheroes um, who are just, like you said, <laughs> smashing buildings. They got stuff. And there's, there's, if you want building smashing, there's plenty of things that get smashed. Subway cars get smashed. Lots of things break in this. But it really is like a, a human story, which is, of course, yeah. the point. And it's just so good. Uh, I can't... I, I, again, when Anne dies at the end, I, I knew it was coming. I always remember it. I remember the blood coming out of her ears and I just kept, you know, I was turning the page on digital and getting ready to... I'm turning the pages, I'm getting there. And it's like, it's still... And the way that that was drawn, that panel, when she falls Ooh. off the stage, it's like, 
it, it it's a comic book, everybody, but it's in slow motion. And I know until yeah. you see the page, that makes no sense. You're like, comic books aren't in slow motion. They're not moving. But it is. Yeah. It's so good. It's yeah. so good. It is. It is. She, In a way, she gets what she deserves at the end because she yeah. kind of deserves to die for all the terrible shit she's done. But she doesn't deserve to live. But it's the way her end comes that really oh. does grab you. My God. It's it's expertly executed storytelling, I think, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And did you see that the yeah. first time you read it? Did you see that coming? Did you remember it when you read it this time that that happened? Uh, I did, yeah, because I'd already read it. Yeah. But yeah. I would, I would, I mean, I'm trying to put myself back those years when I read it, but I think at the time I probably wouldn't have seen it coming. I did not, for sure. I yeah. probably anticipated her dying in a hail of bullets or, or being taken away at the end or something like that. You know, I, do, I wouldn't have seen that coming. Um, because it, it, there was no signposting to it, was there? There was no, no. no illusion to it. It was literally just a, oh, there it is. You know, the mask's dropped. This is this is where this is where we are with it. So yeah, really well executed, and not not the pudding wasn't over egged with it. It was nicely done, I think. For I sure. love that saying. That's awesome. Yeah, right. Because there's <laughs> there's not like right. There's no reason for you to see it. God, it was just such mm. a great. God, it is a, such a great story. It is. Yeah. I, I, it yeah. Is. And 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 I know we. Boy, she's such a villain. And it yeah. was, it, very rarely is there such a satisfying ending for all the villains in this story. <laughs> it's yeah. so bizarre that he was just, no, I'm going to give you the best ending. And then their epilogue is still a kick in the ass, but like, uh, oh God, it's just such a great story. He's such a master. Yeah, he is, he is. Well, fantastic. I mean, we've sort of discussed at length the book and the, the themes of the book and what we both think of it. Shall we go into our final scores? Sure. Uh, okay, so I'll let you have the, the big finish, uh, Tony, oh. as a special guest. And thank um, you. you uh, deserve it for all your uh, contributions to this. And thank you so much for that. I'll quickly give my score. We, we give scores out of five, so whatever you want to give it is, uh, is up to you. But I think from my point of view, it, this again, episode three, and again, it's another five out of five for me. I think this book, it's, it's daring at times, it's provocative at times, but it really has stood the test of time with its message, which I think holds water today, as we've discussed, in a world that we live in that's rife with division and unrest. This is a book that has a real relevance. The art's classy, it's not over the top. And Claremont's script is amazing. It's got such a lot to say. The, the shock value occasionally can be a little on the nose at times. And as I said, walk that sort of razor's edge. But I do feel it never quite oversteps the mark. Uh, if anything, it makes the events feel more like a real world setting, despite the, the high concept. In essence, this book is a self-contained gem of a book. It can always be read multiple times, and for me, is probably one of, easily one of, um, the very best X-Men books ever written. Um, I don't profess to be uh, an X-Men scholar. I haven't read every single X-Men book out there, but the ones I have read, this is, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say it is the be-all and end-all, it is the best, but I'm struggling to think of one that's better, so... Five out of five from me. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and my, my criticism is light. Like I said, there's some, you know, I knew what I was getting with, with Claremont, which sometimes I think he over-explains. But it's, it's yeah. as we've discussed, it's because he's writing a book and then it just happens to be drawn. It happens yeah. to be a literal graphic novel. You know, it could almost have been done where he's writing on the left panel and every other page is just one big splash page of just like one image from that page. That would have worked. But, you know, that obviously wasn't the medium. I mean, this is a five. This isn't even my favorite X-Men team. Rogue's not on it. <laughs> you know, uh, Iceman's not there. Um, yeah. I love Hank. Uh, it's hard not to love Beast. So it's, it's, this isn't even my favorite X-Team but this is my favorite X-Men book, without, without a doubt. It, he, what he manages to do, and again, I'm not a big, Cyclops is, a, I think, everybody's least favorite X-Men. Yeah, he's a dick. He is, but he's <laughs> so good in this. Like, the, the, what, yeah. what Claremont allows him to do raises him up um, in, a, in a real way that you will never leave me. So I'll always be like, oh, right, I hate Scott. Oh, right. What he did in God Loves Man Kills was amazing. So yeah. um, I think just what he does with the characters and he's, this is kind of one of the first books where you start to see some of the flaws in Charles's logic. I think that's important. Uh, it's yeah. just, it, I mean, we could have probably talked for four hours and still not covered everything. Obviously, I think everyone should go <laughs> read this book, even though we've yeah. spoiled it. Uh, there's still things in there that stuff I didn't even notice. And I've read this, you know, 
least 10 times, probably more. So I give it a five out of five. It is, it is hands down. It, I mean, it's my favorite thing that has ever been done in the Marvel universe. I think this is better than Civil wow. War. And I like Civil War a lot, but I, I just personally think, this is my opinion, one person's opinion. It's the, it, it set the stage for um, the ability to do comic books like this, to take superhero comics and make them more than just building smashing. And Civil War is that. I think without this, there isn't Civil War. No. Yeah, you know, I feel like he he allowed storytelling like that to happen. So to me, this is this is yeah, this is the. I mean, I give Civil War a five too, but you know, this would be five point oh one because it's the best thing I think Marvel's ever done. And and again, I'm having not read everything. There's some really good stuff. But yeah, yeah. I, thanks for letting me do this, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's good thank to read you. again. It is, yeah. One of the great things about starting off doing this show is the fact that you get to go back and reread these absolute classics that I haven't read for, you know, a good long while. So it's been great for me so far with the sort of choices that people have asked for. And, you know, I just um, hope that the, uh, the the top tier stuff continues. I think um, for episode four, as a little spoiler, little sneak preview, which um, I'm hopefully to record in with our mutual friend Dave again um, later nice. in the week. Uh, I think we're going to be looking at Guardian Devil, uh, Daredevil from the late 90s, um, which was written by um, Kevin Smith of all people. Right, yeah. Um, which is a, an interesting book. A lot going on in that as well. With uh, It's quite similar to this, actually, with the, the themes of religion and, and, um, and what Well, that's you. a big so, deal uh, for Kevin Smith, for sure. Nice. Yeah. It is, yeah. So there'll be a lot to unpack there. So that's another one I'm looking forward to nice. reacquainting myself with over the next couple of days. So uh, nice. it should be a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. Well, Tony, thank you so much again for giving up your time and, and your, giving your expertise and insight into this. I, I can't thank you enough. Um, it's, it's been, been excellent. It has. Thank you so much again. If you want to let everyone who's listening know where they can find, obviously, your all your work and, and where to find you on, on social media and all the rest of it, fire away. Sure. So um, I review at DC Comics News, and I just joined um, El Stevo and you over at Fantastic Universes. I did my first yes. piece there. Love that guy. I, I hopefully you'll have El Stevo on talk about oh def- yeah talk about definitely. a guy who I mean just let him just turn him on let him go he's on my show next <laughs> week so uh, on the tenth of April so uh, you can follow me so I, I'm on I'm on those places my uh, Twitter handle is at tricycleboombox and I have a website arfarina.com my initials arfarina.com and you can actually get links to everything there my, um, some of the shows I've been on uh, link to a short story I had published recently. A um, couple of songs I've written. So check me out there. And of course, I'm part of the Comics in Motion feed. Uh, my show, Indie Comics Spotlight, comes out on Fridays. Yes. And I, everyone needs to uh, be listening to that. That is a, a highlight of my week. It really is. I mean, I appreciate some of the you'll stuff be on to- soon. Uh, yes, uh, we will be uh, recording in the very near future. I look forward to that. And it is a great show. I mean, some of the stuff it's turned me on to, stuff that I was completely oblivious to, it, it, it's, it's very existence. And, and it's, been, it's been brilliant. It's really sort of turned me on to some stuff I never would have dreamt of, of reading and, and I feel only the better for it. It's a great show. Nice. Thanks. I appreciate that. That's the hope, right? And uh, uh, tomorrow's show, the guy who's on, well, it'll probably be, I think your show will come out after mine. So the show that just came out, uh, Sam Mm -hmm. Latfi, the the comic artist is on. So we just talk indie comics in general and uh, his process. He's worked for Dark Horse and Dynamite and IDW. Um, He's done work for DC. He's got a book coming out for DC actually in two weeks. So it was great. He's always been generous with his time with me. And so we spent an hour locked in talking just about his career. It was great. Fantastic. Well, that's uh, one I can't wait to uh, listen to. I'll be there waiting for it to drop into my uh, podcast feed. And it's one I'll be uh, cranking up as soon as I'm physically able to do so. I mean, (laughs) like everyone at the moment, all I've got is time. (laughs) Right, For sure. Well, I appreciate (laughs) that, Max. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. My, it's absolutely my pleasure. Um, so thank you, everyone who's out there who's uh, given us the time of, of listening to our show today. Um, if you want to say hi, you can find me on Twitter at, at MaxiBurn, which is M-A-X-Y-B-Y-R-N-E. There's links there to the various sites I sort of write reviews for and what have you. So by all means, if you drop on there, you'll find examples of my uh, witterings on <laughs> online. So by all means, get on there and uh, say hi. And um, in the meantime, everyone, take care of yourselves out there. Look after yourselves and your families in these times. And more importantly, stay safe. Okay, bye for now. Bye.